You're listening to Salmon Farming Inside and Out, a podcast series brought to you by Aquaculture North America. This podcast is sponsored by Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species. Hello and welcome to another episode of Salmon Farming Inside and Out. I'm your co-host, Marilyn de Guzman. And I'm Ian Roberts. Nice to be back with you, Mary Lynn, uh, after our last podcast where we were talking with uh, Tim Kennedy at the Canadian Aquaculture Industry Alliance. Yes, that was a really great conversation. And I I admit I did learn a lot of uh, from what he said about sort of the history and the behind the scenes and the social political issues that surround, you know, what's going on in the industry. Yeah, and there's a lot going on. So that was a a, a great second episode for us just to get the overlook of Canadian aquaculture and salmon specifically. And and uh, thanks to Tim for that. And and now we we uh, we are blessed with a guest here um, uh, that uh, will help us look at the history of uh, salmon farming on the west coast in in British Columbia. We're looking in the next couple of episodes to bring in some pioneers that can go back in time and remind us how it all came to be. So looking forward to this. Yes, really excited to uh, be introducing our guest today. But first, you know, I know you've done some research in our previous episode about some fun facts about salmon. So I did the same thing. I have a question for you and we'll ask our guest, you know, if she knows the answer later. The earliest record of salmon in North America is called the saber-toothed salmon. They're in fossils dating up to 7 million years ago. Can you guess the size of these prehistoric salmon species? All right. We'll look forward to uh, the answer at the end of the episode. So if I can, I'd uh, like to introduce our guest for this episode, and that is Linda Sams. Linda is the Sustainable Development Director at CERMAC Canada. Uh, She oversees CERMAC's commitment to corporate social responsibility. Linda is a marine biologist with a focus on environmental toxicology. And over her 35-year career, Linda has worked in all facets of the aquaculture industry, in Canada and also in Australia with a strong international aquaculture network in the areas of environmental management, uh, fish health management, and performance research. That said, Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, welcome, Linda. I guess we can start off our conversation by just uh, you, if you could provide this sort of an overview of CERMAC and uh, where your company's at right now. CERMAC has traditionally occupied the second or third largest spot in uh, salmon farming internationally. We have operations in Chile, uh, in Norway, and on the west coast of Canada in British Columbia. So we're a well-established company, uh, quite a thought leader in corporate social responsibility and working within um, uh, the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals. So uh, quite an exciting company to work with. Now, Linda, you, uh, I mentioned in your intro, you have 35 years in the, in the industry, mm-hmm. not just in Canada, but in Australia as well. But uh, I know you're, uh, I've spent a long time in British Columbia. We really wanted to explore in this episode kind of the roots of salmon farming and salmon aquaculture and how it all came to be. Um, as some of us are nearing retirement, <laughs> I think it's great to capture this history uh, in this podcast. Um, but maybe first we can start with your history, just how you entered the uh, business, kind of when and where and, and those early days, if you can think back. <laughs> I can. It was uh, an exciting time. Uh, I grew up on a farm um, and I grew up uh, loving farming and being in 4-H and working with dairy cattle and and we had like a 
a hobby farm where we grew our own food and and obviously in that community I had a passion for that but I also had a passion for marine biology and and went on to university to do degrees in that. Uh, at that time, uh, this was uh, the time of the original Jacques Cousteau talking about farming the oceans and it, it really captured my interest. And I went to Simon Fraser University and there were mariculture courses being offered at Bamfield Marine Station. And, and I, and I uh, signed up for that, uh, went to learn about growing everything, uh, fin fish, shellfish, seaweed, and, and even some multi-trophic, which we call now, but then it was just called polyculture. And my imagination was captured. So um, we heard about some uh, farms opening up on the Sunshine Coast near Seashelt. And I just packed up my little Pinto, my little <laughs> bright yellow Pinto with my gear. And because I came from doing work on a farm. I already owned rubber boots and out I went. And I think I got hired not because of my degrees or even my farming background, but because I knew how to use power tools and uh, I could dive. So that's how my adventure started on the Sunshine Coast. And uh, yeah, it was rustic then, let me tell you. And is that where the industry started? Was it kind of, uh, for those that don't know the geography of, of the West Coast, it's kind of... Uh, uh, north of Vancouver and, and in between Vancouver Island and the mainland, but that, that Seashelt area, why was that an interest and, and kind of what was it like in the early days? I think, well, there was a couple areas that where people were starting to explore the concept of farming and they were looking at Pacific species uh, originally. So coho, uh, trout, and uh, Chinook salmon predominantly. There was, they were exper experimenting with different nets and and wooden, we had wooden cage systems. So in the early days, I think it was a lot of people that either had been you know, working in bio as biologists, perhaps an enhancement and, and ex-fishermen that were really looking at this concept and, and being close to a hub and to a road system and all that sort of thing was really front of mind. The type of equipment we had then didn't really lend itself to more exposed areas. So the more protected, areas of Jervis, Jervis Inlet and, and some of the channels in that area. At the same time, I believe there was um, a start of uh, industry on near uh, Quadra Island and Campbell River as well. Um, there were some established enhancement hatcheries that had been enhancement hatcheries that were being used for the first stock in the Sunshine Coast area. And I don't know if there was a real rhyme or reason other than what people thought was suitable water and probably where there was already interest for from investment so yeah i don't think there was a lot of science but behind the locations at that point salmon is really a, a big industry in bc has that always been the case yeah well even in those days in the late 80s and that 90s we were already seeing a decrease in the commercial fisheries in different areas. Um, there was a recognized market uh, and opportunity for farming salmon. And obviously these startups were very entre entrepreneurial. I mean, we had at that point in time, um, I, Roger and Linda May were the first company I worked for with Royal Pacific Sea Farms. And there was actually a Vancouver Stock Exchange at that point in time. And they were one of the kind of venture capital capital or uh, venture industries that was being brought forward at that time. Now, there was already a blossoming industry in Norway um, at that time as well. So people could see the potential 
British Columbia has hundreds and hundreds of miles of coastline and obviously is an ideal place for salmon to grow. Just look at all our wild salmon populations. So it, it made sense that this would be an industry that might translate to British Columbia. So back 30, 40, even 50 years ago, people mm. are starting to see the decline of wild salmon and they see an opportunity to culture salmon to fill that market gap, um, obviously. And, and I find it interesting because, Linda, back then, BC chose salmon farming. Um, Alaska was seeing major declines in their wild stocks as well. And I think mm. in 1974, they chose to really boost their uh, enhancement facilities or their hatcheries. And, and today it's called salmon ranching. So, yeah. you know, Alaska went one way with aquaculture and BC went the other way. What was the reason for that, that the, the state and the province went in different directions, but doing the same thing, essentially? I wasn't in the minds of the people that at the time that were making those decisions. But I, I do believe that there was quite an excitement around the industry itself and the technology and the um, opportunities that produced from a farming perspective, right? Because where we were looking were in areas that were um, coastal communities that had long depended on resource-based industries. There was more development and perhaps not the wild commercial fishing focus that maybe you see in Alaska. And I think there was a real understanding of the market and what we could do to supply salmon to it in a very controlled, predictable way. As we started to see expertise come from other countries, and I believe the provincial government, who of course then was very involved in the development of our industry, saw the opportunity to create a stable, steady supply of food, of an agricultural product that BC could stand behind. So at that time, there was tons of enthusiasm for this and what it meant. It wasn't just the purview of commercial fishermen. It was about developing a farming industry, which is what really piqued my interest and, and really got me thinking about how we could do this in a way that was, again, higher quality, more predictable, and really took advantage of this, this wonderful market that we had waiting for it. You had mentioned Pacific species were growing on farms back then, but obviously today, uh, you know, most of the production that comes from BC is the Atlantic salmon, the Salmo salar. What was the reason behind that? Was there history on the coast uh, with Atlantic salmon prior to salmon farming? Well, we know that, you know, Atlantic salmon, obviously they tried to stock Atlantic salmon for recreational purposes multiple times unsuccessfully. So I think there was a different mindset with Atlantic salmon, you know, before salmon farming around as an opportunity. And we see that across Canada where species are introduced. And at that time, I mean, obviously we know much more now than we knew then about what the impact of that was. But I mean, people saw as an opportunity as either a commercial fishery or a wreck fishery. I mean, let's face it, Atlantic salmon are delicious. Um, they're a different salmon again than Pacific species and they're large, they're a great sport fish. So you can understand why there was a real wish around that. I mean, even the first Norwegian companies when they came into the Sunshine Coast were growing Pacific salmon. Where the Atlantic salmon was uh, first introduced as an aquaculture species was actually on the east side of Vancouver Island. And I hadn't, I was my career, my early days of my career were on um, obviously on the, uh, around the Sunshine Coast side. But what we started to hear about these Atlantic salmon 
was how fast they grew, how effective they were at growing and, and having a beautiful yield. So more meat, less bone. And the fact that they seem quite resistant um, to health issues. So they were really a healthy, fast growing, beautiful salmon, much more docile from our experience than coho or Chinook. I mean, obviously we were still working with a very wild product or a very wild broodstock at that point. So, um, and these Atlantic salmon had been domesticated and selectively bred for quite a few generations in Norway and Scotland before uh, they came to British Columbia. And when we saw how efficient they were, it was like growing deer versus growing a Hereford. It, you know, it, as a farmer, and I had to look at it through my farmer's lens, you know, we were pretty interested in what these Atlantic salmon were able to do and what wonderful fish they were for farming. That's a fascinating story. It's interesting for me to hear that sort of history behind the Atlantic salmon being farmed in the West Coast. What made you focus on sustainability promotion in your company? Well, I guess for me, it was a kind of a natural move in my career when you look at my actual education and what I had focused on. And for the fact that, you know, we were working in the ocean environment, we had to understand how we uh, coexisted with the ocean from a from a farming perspective, but then also how we assimilate it in that environment from an ecosystem perspective, you know, and, and everybody wants healthy, vibrant fish, and it's quite a dance. It's an interaction. So it's really important to understand that from a business perspective and also from a responsibility perspective. What really got me uh, even further involved in that aspect of the work was the work that I did with um, indigenous communities up and down the coastline and uh, the communities that we worked with and partnered with obviously put a high, the highest priority on their wild salmon and on uh, the ecosystem itself. So it was really important that we were focusing on that and making it part of our business model. And for me, it was just kind of a natural progression. One thing that kind of sometimes is lost um, when people think about these salmon farming companies, and some of them have head offices in Norway or, or international, and some do not. But these are really well-developed corporate social responsible companies that are coming from Scandinavia. And obviously they want their business, it's important to be profitable, but not at all costs. And I think in Canada, in BC, my first experience with that kind of mindset and that holistic responsible approach really came from Scandinavian com companies. And they were interested in the social aspect, they were interested in the environmental management aspect and the global aspect. So everything from, you know, changing oceans from biodiversity, but to climate change. So um, that fascinated me, lined up with my academic credentials, but also as a farmer and a passionate farmer, it made real sense. You, you want to care for people because you're creating food, but you need to create for the planet to keep ongoing creating food. It's not that complex of a calculus. So um, I've enjoyed my career immensely and uh, been involved in many, many progressive endeavors around that. You mentioned uh, Norway a couple of times. Yeah. And it reminds me of a National Film Board of Canada film that I saw, I think, from the 70s around Canadian and Norwegian collaboration on salmon farming. It's a yeah. fascinating watch if anybody yeah. wants to dig into the files of the National <laughs> Film Board. Um, 
when I speak to the public about salmon farming, because that's what I do, um, uh, there is a question around Norway's interest in Canadian salmon farming on the West Coast anyway. I'll just relay a couple of rumors that, you know, uh, Norwegians at that time in the 80s were being forced out of their country or, you know, there was too many rules in Norway. So they wanted to go to Canada where it was the Wild West and there was no. So can, can we bust a, a couple of myths here? If you can help just explain why there was Norwegian interest or what was happening to Canadian salmon farmers uh, back in the late 80s, yeah, I guess. I, I can. And no, I mean, obviously that none of that is true. I mean, they they are were still growing in Norway during that period of time as well. And 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 salmon farming was growing as an interest in in other countries as well, you know, and, and Scotland and and Chile come to mind. But, you know, in Ireland, there was areas where where there was suitable coastline, there was a real interest in seeing if that could be um, a successful venture for aquaculture. So um, it was it would would have been business driven in a, in a normal way. Um, the, the proximity to a growing market in the U.S. obviously had um, was obvious interest, and you know for the the fact that you can you cannot uh, provide fresh salmon from Norway to New York. I mean that's from a salmon farm easily without flying it. This was a, a chance to provide a very high quality product to um, a very uh, receptive and growing market in North America. So um, it was business, um, but I can tell you here was the state of BC versus Norway. Um, I can tell you an incident we had a uh, Norwegian farm move into the bay across from a farm that I was working on. And uh, they showed up uh, with these um, amazing new systems. Um, they showed up with um, the beginning of the automatic feeding. We were still feeding fish with sh snow shovels into wooden <laughs> systems and they had all this high tech. And yes, they were young men that came from salmon farming companies uh, and maybe well, some of their Linda fathers were owners. Linda, Linda was looking <laughs> over the bay, wasn't she? Yeah, I was the other way around, I would tell you. And there weren't very many women in the Bay. I can tell you that right now. That was probably an advantage for me. Uh, but actually, I met my husband uh, at that salmon farm, and he was not Norwegian. But I just, um, yeah, so they, they came and opened our eyes to the technology and how we could uh, improve this industry and improve how we did things. And they came with expertise in breeding, uh, in uh, fish health management, uh, nets, like you name it. They, they were bringing the state of the art to BC and uh, really, uh, you know, and we had good operators and good people in BC, but they, they definitely um, enhanced our industry for sure. You, you mentioned your husband, by the way, and, and yeah. before we move on, because I think this is a great segue into, okay, that's yeah. how it looked then. How does yeah. it look now? And what is the interest of, of Norway in that technology? But your husband, I believe, um, and if we were surrounded by good looking Norwegians at that time, your husband was picked to be the poster boy of, was it National Geographic on the, <laughs> on the right. title page? Exactly right. Yeah. No, wow. that's right. Yeah. Um, the reason I... I, I really started to pay attention to him was because all the young women at the processing plant were talking about this fellow. And I went, oh, okay, he's just across the water from me. <laughs> Maybe we yeah. can get the poster boy on this uh, one of these episodes as well. <laughs> He'll give you what it's like to be married to somebody in aquaculture. <laughs> we can post a picture of that National Geographic uh, issue. He's still sure. in this. Oh, uh... he has. We must have four copies at home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so Linda, maybe maybe it would be a good time now uh, as we get to the latter half of the episode. To, you know, we talked about what it was like then, but can we just, you know, in a in a, in brevity, talk about uh, how it's evolved over time and the big changes that you've seen in the industry yeah. over your thirty-five year career to where we are today? Can you speak yep. to that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's been such an exciting trajectory of knowledge gain. I think that when you're in a young industry, um, especially an industry developing in the age of, you know, business at the speed of thought, right? Like with the opportunity that computing and digitization and our knowledge of the ocean was growing as well, you know, it, it was an exciting time. Um, you know, uh, yeah, just so many high tech and biotech um, type of advancement. So, you know, we started off in a very traditional farming manner, as you would uh, with land farming. I mean, and, and, you know, we've seen it grow in leaps and bounds in different ways too. Um, but we were tackling, you know, a rugged coastline that we didn't even understand a lot about at that time. And that's not the fault of the industry. It was that the information that was to be gathered was few and far between. And we were working hard at it from all levels of government as well as the industry. Now, of course, there is an exception to that. And it is uh, the indigenous communities, indigenous nations that were up along the coast that absolutely did have a high capacity of knowledge around the area. And, you know, I was really proud to be working for a company that that really was working hard to understand that, but also had the opportunity to partner with a nation that really, um, really laid their authority um, down in front of us, which we picked up and also really got involved in the development of the salmon farming. And what was new then is now the way that salmon farming is progressing in British Columbia working uh, with Indigenous nations. There were farms put in places without any consultation and without consent. And we're seeing that those areas now are, are uh, slowly closing down and the focus uh, and the growth opportunity obviously sits with when there are true partnerships between the Indigenous uh, nations and the industry and, and real equity stakes. And, and that's been a big change since when I started. Um, but I think that's been a big change for Canadians and British Columbians in the context of UNDRIP and understanding how we do business now, especially resource industries. So when we talk about Norway and the influence of Norway in the sort of evolution of uh, salmon aquaculture in, in Canada, in BC, um, you know, we, when we look at where Norway is right now, it, it's um, they're progressed and it's a, it's a very mature industry. Is that something that we can look forward to, you know, being at in this industry where Norway is at right now, or do we have a long mm -hmm. ways to go? I, I, I'm fearful that we'll ever have the opportunity uh, in British Columbia that they have in Norway. So Norway, um, again, continues to be the leader in innovation and tech and in salmon farming and in responsibility around salmon farming, no question. Um, to go there and to see um, their latest advancements and their latest approaches is to be very impressed. Um, in the difference in Norway too um, is that, again, they have strong government support and the salmon farming is recognized to be absolutely essential to uh, their operations. I was in Norway in the early 2000s and um, I remember there, I think it was the 
it was either, I think it was the fisheries minister, it was someone, anyhow, someone very high level in government was talking and they were saying that, you know, oil and gas could come and go, but uh, salmon farming was the backbone of the economy of the coastal areas and would be there forever, right? And that was, they rely on it. So they take it very seriously and they take maintaining it very seriously. Unfortunately, we're facing a situation in British Columbia where um, we are being, um, we're under, we're under a lot of duress from misinformation, lack of support from federal and provincial government, and the lost opportunity almost makes me sick to my stomach, um, because we, of course, we are the largest agro export in BC, and two months. We had two months just recently where we had no fish to the market. And that is, in my career, I never thought I would see this. Um, and so we, it's unfortunate. Um, we're important and we're sophisticated and we have the opportunity to be something really amazing here and amazing in a way that wild salmon are protected, indigenous rights are protected and reconciliation, like we really are at the forefront of how a BC business should operate. Um, of course, too, and I, I need to say it because it's the biggest environmental issue facing, you know, our generation, my children's generation is climate change. And what we have here in British Columbia with farm salmon is, is a extremely low carbon footprint protein and companies that are actually, we're signatories to the science-based target initiative. We wanna work with the provincial and federal government on you know, reducing our impact in, and providing healthy protein, food security, economic security in small rural coastal areas. And yeah, I'm concerned. I'm really concerned as a Canadian citizen as well as a mother and hopefully one day a grandmother. Hope my kids listen to this. And I just, really want us to give it a chance here because you know we're really throwing away a wonderful opportunity so so linda you mentioned you know lack of support from federal and provincial governments for for salmon aquaculture salmon farming on the west coast and then the listener just to flag the previous episode with tim kennedy we go into quite a bit of detail on those decisions and the politics around it so if you're interested to find out more please listen to the previous episode with with Tim Kennedy. Um, but given that, you know, you, uh, you and, and many uh, of your colleagues on the West Coast are determined to, to find the opportunity and, and to, uh, to make sure that the next generation get the opportunity, not just to work in the industry, but participate in the industry, eat the food, which you say, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. is, is tasty and very climate friendly. But what would be, uh, you know, your vision for for the future of the the sector in BC? You started 35 years ago. You saw the opportunity. Um, you saw the potential. Um, maybe it hasn't reached that potential yet. But where can we be in the future? Well, I mean, I'm hoping we can go back. I mean, it's a utopian vision, but I do love the idea of that multi, um, you know, multicultural. Plants and shellfish and fin fish and the backbone of all our farming of the ocean is Atlantic salmon. You know the infrastructure, the knowledge, the the capacity that is there in so many ways that it's only a tip of the iceberg. I think 
the general public probably doesn't understand the depth of that and how that'll carry us forward to farming the ocean. Um, I see us doing it in a way that is um, in harmony with the ecosystem, but also because of the capacity we're building in science, which comes with our industry is understanding the ocean that's changing around us. You know, we're seeing warmth, we're seeing um, you know, we're seeing hypoxia and acidification. It's affecting everything in the ocean environment. So hopefully this is a response to providing food still from the ocean and much needed um, capacity for rural, coastal and indigenous communities to maintain that lifestyle. Um, I see that working well and I see us being better understood. Um, we're farmers, uh, you know, please support your farmers we need to feed ourselves and you have an industry here that wants to do it responsibly. Um, we're not perfect, but we never said we were and, but we're, we're always open to improvement. Uh, there's no doubt it's going to look different in the future. I mean, you know, yeah. you think about how it looked 35 years ago to how it looks today. Yeah. It's going to look different in the future, but uh, you know, what you've done over the last 35 years, you and your colleagues have built a foundation, as you say, that is, is salmon aquaculture that is going to be the catalyst for so many different species and so many different Correct. foods. But we can't build on, on a lack of foundation. So we, yeah. we need to continue um, to build on the successes we have. And we certainly hope that the provincial and federal governments are, are supportive of that. That's right. Don't chase out the companies that are committed to the area and have a long-term, you know, a long, long-term commitment to these coastal areas and operate at the highest level of sustainability and responsibility. You know, these are the companies you want to create pathways for because they're invested. They're invested in a lot of a lot of communities, a lot of capacity, infrastructure, uh, work with them. They are open. They want to work with the federal and provincial government to create a bright new future for salmon aquaculture. Very well said. And on that point, we'd like to thank you, Linda, for sharing your treasure trove of knowledge <laughs> in the industry. Well, let's really test her knowledge because it all comes down to this one question. So we asked a question earlier. The earliest record of salmon in North America is called the saber-toothed salmon, and it was found in fossils <laughs> dating up to 7 million years ago. It's the dinosaur mm. salmon. Cool. Yeah, but can you guess the size of these prehistoric? Well, first disclaimer: my other degree is archaeology. Oh, okay. So <laughs> you should ace this. We are full of surprises. I don't know between two and three meters. Oh wow, uh, listener, we have not prompted Linda on the answer at all. I know we um, have not. This yeah. is her knowledge. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's up to three meters long. There you go. Yeah. No, that's right. See, us salmon farmers are full of surprises. We bring lots to the table. That's great. Well, thanks again for sharing your knowledge and your insights today, Linda. And we'll hope, yeah. we hope to have you again in the show uh, in the future. All right. Well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to share. You've been listening to Salmon Farming Inside and Out, brought to you by Aquaculture North America. If you have a comment on today's episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, connect with Aquaculture North America on Twitter or through our LinkedIn and Facebook pages. This podcast is sponsored by Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species. <music>